Well, good morning, everybody. You know, as I listen to these worship songs, I'm always caught by certain lyrics, and one of the lyrics this morning said something like, um, these bones will cry, great are you, Lord. And you know, in the morning at 43 years old, my bones don't really cry, great are you, Lord, anymore. <laughs> they, they more cry like, what have you done to me, Lord? Anyway, so uh, yes, amen. I knew that that would catch somebody, but uh, it, it is, say it again. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Barney. That was really helpful. Um, I love your encouragement. It's always, it's always awesome. Anyway, well, guys, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be uh, engaging with this beginning of the patriarchal narratives, as we call it, in, uh, in the book of Genesis. But as always, it's really important to constantly remember where we are and what we have, um, what we've understood so far. And this is a a super, super, super brief uh, recap. God is a God of order and he created everything that we know and everything that we see in a particular order. Um, He designed that order for our good. He designs that order to reflect the character of who he is. And as we, um, as we were to... Uh, reflect his image into the world, it would have been uh, an image of order. It would have been an image of taking that which was unsettled and, and even chaotic, those things that are at the, you know, the kind of edges of order and edges of perfection, and we were to bring them in and subdue them, and, and, and we were to make something beautiful, quite honestly. Uh, God could have made everything the, the way he made the garden. He could have just said, and everything is perfect, and tended his own garden, but he didn't do so. He, he made the world out of that which was formless and void. Then he specifically plants this garden in the east of Eden, and, uh, and he cultivates this, and then he sends us out to subdue the world and to be fruitful and multiply. And so we are supposed to be order bringers, but as we know from the story, we, we didn't do what he called us to do. We didn't reflect his image rightly into the world. And so uh, from a God of order, uh, we turned uh, a world that he made into disorder. And so God is not a God who, um, who just abandons things. He doesn't give up. He's a faithful and true uh, friend and, and king. And so in his faithfulness, he is going to restore that order. And the way he chooses to do it repeatedly is through instruments of salvation and through the actual people that he's made as image bearers. And it's kind of a strange story because I think you and I would uh, have given up by now, right? I think we would have looked at it and said, sorry, it's not worth it. Let's scrap this junk and start again. But God continues to do this. He continues to be faithful and he continues to utilize us as people. And I think the reason why he keeps doing this is to really, uh, in many ways, uh, show his power, Uh, He shows how big he is because he can use that which is imperfect and that which is broken and that which even uh, pushes against him or rebels against him and he brings it into a beautiful thing. And so uh, 
as we work through this, God of order and then man in disorder, now we're looking back at how God plans to reorder everything all the way up to the present and into the future. And he starts this through this strange character, this man named Abram. So in Genesis chapter 12, uh, there are two main sections that we see in Genesis 12, and that is verses 1 through 8, roughly, uh, or 1 through 9, and, then, and, and that simply sets out the promise and, and, and Abra, Abram's journey to Canaan, and then we also have the second section, which is uh, what we're going to call, we're going to refer to this a lot in this third part of the series, we're going to call it the... Um, the uh, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? The things that come against the promise of God, right? These, these are attacks on the promise of God. These are threats to the promise of God, whatever it is that we want to use. But there are going to be many of these things. And here's what I want you to remember throughout all those threats. The point of the story is that God remains faithful no matter what the threats are. I just want you to keep remembering that no matter what. And there's a really important point in your life as well that there is a promise, there is a covenant that all of us have entered into and that covenant uh, encounters in, in threats against it just as Abram did and just as many others do and God still remains faithful no matter what the threat is. The challenge for us is to not lose heart in the midst of those threats, Right? How many of you face challenges and trials in your following after Jesus and, and, and it begins to worry you, it begins to weary you, begins to break you? How many of you have found yourself in those positions? Oftentimes, uh, oftentimes in family situations or real world situations where, where it affects our emotions and it affects our everyday life. And so it's really important to realize that these threats are going to come, but God is going to remain faithful. So we're going to watch this through uh, the story of Abram first, and we will always apply this. It is important, though, and we had a really good conversation. I'll refer to this conversation a couple of times probably today. Uh, We had a really good conversation last Sunday after church. Barney, myself, Dwayne, and Dylan. And we, we talked about the tendency that we have to look at the Bible and look at the story of Abram and look at the story of all the characters of the Bible solely through this kind of uh, pathological view or solely through this way of living your life, some psychological lesson that we learn. Can you learn lessons from these stories in the Bible? Can you learn lessons? The answer is absolutely. Is that the point of the story? Not even remotely. Not even remotely. It's very important that you don't jump into these stories and just try to pull some sort of psychological principle out and say, that's all that God was trying to teach us to do. There's a tendency for that. I'm not suggesting that those principles are not there. I'm simply saying that was not even remotely the point of the story. The point of these stories, I think repeatedly, 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 is that God remains faithful in the midst of the promises he makes and the journey that we go on in life, and that he is reordering the very thing that we broke, okay? So we're going to start in Genesis 12, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read a section. I'm going to walk through some explanation, and then we're going to read the second section. So here we go. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. 
and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Notice the be blessed and be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. These are servants. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the lands as far as the site of Shechem, the oak of Morah, or the, the terebinth tree. Now the Canaanite was, there, was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing towards the southern country or the Negev. So the first thing that we brought up last week and the thing that needs to be remembered is that the promise has three components to it, okay? The promise has a land component, the promise has a seed component, and the promise has a blessing component. Now, with regard to the seed component, we also touched on the idea that this transitions into the new covenant, and that is that the seed of Abram, uh, who will become Abraham, travels all the way down, according to Galatians, and it results in King Jesus. He is the seed, not seeds, but the seed of Abram. And, and, and through Jesus, we are all born, again, as children of God, Right? And, and in light of that, we have a gospel message. And that good news is to be a blessing to all the world. It is imperative that we do not repeat the problem or repeat the, the, um, the fault of the Jewish people. And that is to sit twiddling our thumbs when we have such a powerful message. It is not that you want to preach the gospel to the world to earn brownie points so that you can get your way into heaven. Okay? It is not that point. The point is, you literally have the message of life within you, of reconciliation, the Bible says, with God, and you are to deliver that message to the world, and that is a lot more natural and a lot more organic than maybe our Christian world has created, but we are to go into all the world and we're to preach this gospel and we're to make followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, and we're to baptize them, right? There's this symbol and this beautiful truth of, of new life. And we are to teach them to obey all that God has commanded. And sadly, I think we have gone into all the world and we taught all the rules and regulations of Christianity and of the Bible, but we forgot to make followers of Jesus, right? And you might say, but following Jesus is keeping his commands. Yes, it's a part of it, right? But following Jesus is beginning to gain a new heart and a new mind that actually understands why Jesus is right versus why you're wrong, okay? So this is a, this is a trick, and it's something that we have to do. So, so this seed component transitions into the New Testament. The blessing component is not only that we are blessed as children of God and that everything we have need of God is providing for us and caring for us, but that those blessings are also to be carried into the world, to be given to the world at large. 
But then we also have this land component, and we're going to be journeying with Abram through this land piece, right? And there's a lot of ups and downs and hiccups in this, right? But this land component is such a beautiful thing, because as I shared last week, it's important for us to know the land will ultimately result in all the earth. God wants everything. And he wanted everything to begin with. And this is the promise. But again, we had this really fun conversation last Sunday after church. And and it's really important for you to also realize that because even though God is going to bless the whole world, and even though God is going to give all things to his people, that is the meek will inherit the earth, although God is going to do that, God also is very, uh, very partial to a particular land. He's very partial to a particular land. He did this in the beginning with Eden and the garden in the east of it. He does this again with Israel. And and one of the things that kind of came up in our conversation was that it seems like God uh, isolates this one location uh, and and creates it as uh, as an epicenter for him to kind of flex his godly muscles, right? For him to do powerful, powerful things. Again, he did this, planned this from Eden, and the the blessing would flow out. He does this again from Jerusalem, and then he's going to do this again with a new Jerusalem. And it's going to be an amazing thing, right? God is a God who says, I'm starting here, and I'm going everywhere, okay? But everywhere ultimately results in that, that land blessing that's going on here. So with Abram, The Lord is actually speaking to Abram. And and there's one thing that I think is worthy of note here. We don't actually hear from Abram. What do we actually see instead of words from Abram? We see actions. We see his obedience. We have this hiccup in the church today in which we say we're saved by grace through faith and any action that we do we seem to put into a category of works in such a way as that we're trying to earn our salvation, which is nonsense, right? Um, We are not trying to earn our salvation through our works. We are simply walking out our faith through what we do, okay? And so there's nothing, honestly, Guys, that speaks louder than what you do with your actions. We all talk a good game, and I know I'm getting into the psychology of this, but, but we all talk a good game. But the, the question is, what do we do with our actions? This is something that uh, when we were doing Father's Group, this is something that Merle repeated almost every week, right? And that is we have to walk our walk as well as talk our talk. We cannot do one without the other. Okay? And so there is, an, there is a, an important part in this story in which we see action. So God says to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. This is huge. Um, by placing the call of Abram after this dispersion of the nations of Babylon... And this is where this story gets even bigger. By placing the call of Abram after uh, Babel, uh, the author intended to picture Abram's call as God's gift of salvation in the midst of judgment. This is an important way in which you should see Abram as an individual. Now, the similarities between Abram and and there are two other narratives, uh, but the similarities between Abram and two other narratives, both that of Noah and future stories, are actually really interesting. And I want to I take you through this just to give you a picture of what the author of 
Torah, what the author of the scriptures is actually doing. So in Genesis chapter 8, verses 15 through 20, we see this phrase, Then God said to Noah, that's in chapter 8, verse 15. In chapter 12, verse 1, we say, The Lord said to Abram. Okay, now I know that this might not look like anything to you, but these parallels are amazing, and it speaks to the crafting of writing over time to share with you some beautiful truth. The second part, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 16, it says, come out from the ark, right? And in Genesis 12, verse 1, we see leave your country. So there's this coming out. In uh, Genesis 8, 18, Noah came out. There's actions, right? And in Genesis 12, 4, Abram left. In uh, Genesis 8, 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. What happens with Abram? In chapter 12, verse 7, so Abram built an altar there to the Lord. In Genesis, or in Genesis 9, 1, then God blessed Noah. What happens to Abram? In 12, 12, it says, and I, God, will bless you. In Genesis 9, 1, we see be fruitful and increase spoken to Noah, right? In Genesis 12, 2, I will make you into a great nation. And I love the beauty of this. The parallels are always there, but there's a more strong emphasis on God doing the making here. And then last but not least, we have Genesis 9, 9, which says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants. And then in 12, 7, to your offspring, I will give this land, right? There's this covenant promise. And God is... is um, commonly doing this, right? There's this repeat of, of his process and of his plan and what goings on, it goes on. So there's a kind of striking thematic parallel between uh, Noah and between what Abram is doing. Both Noah and Abram represent new beginnings in the course of events that are recorded throughout the book of Genesis, okay? And this is going to repeat with Jacob as well and Joseph as well. Both, though, are marked by God's promise of blessing, right, and his gift of a particular covenant, okay? So these are really important things. Another parallel inside of this is, <clears throat> is what we see when we get to this Egypt story, and I'll get to that in just a second because I think that, that it, it's worth uh, showing you all of these parallels. So the second thing, I, I mentioned it last week briefly. It says, and from your father's house. Um, this is a, a quote by Robert Alter, and I think that this is a fascinating thing to consider. The divine imperative to head out for an unspecified place uh, is God's, uh, Alter calls it God's terrible call to Abram. Um, in chapter 22, it echoes his sacrifice of his son on the mountain of God. Did you guys know that according to the scripture, uh, Abram did not know where he was going? He doesn't know. This is found in Hebrews chapter 11, right? He doesn't actually know where he's going. How many of you get scared when you don't know the plan? You love that, don't you? You get scared. By the way, fear of the unknown... <clears throat> Fear of not knowing what God has planned for you is one of the threats to the covenant, okay? Because what can fear do? Fear can stop you. 
Fear will park you right where you've always been, okay? And I know we're getting psychological inside of this, but this could have truly stopped Abram. But Abram is viewed in a much better light than I think we view Abram. He is viewed as a kind of savior in which he is going to bring out this promise. And so God is talking of him in such a beautiful way. So, so again, uh, this parallel in chapter 22, the sacrifice of Abram's son in Isaac, is this really challenging call, okay? So there's also a shrewd connection between the triplet here, and that is your land and your birthplace and your father's house. There's an increase that I talked about last week, okay? There is your land, you're leaving a location, you're leaving the identity of who you were, and you're leaving your father's house, this this family that you have. In chapter 22, he says, "I, I want you to give your son your only one, the one whom you love. That progression is hard. It's not just give a son, right? God says, give one of your daughters, Nate. And I'm like, okay, let's figure out which one is not pulling their weight. No. So, so the idea here is give your son, give your only son, give the one that you love, okay? In this series, in each case, Robert Alter goes on and says, the series in each case focuses the utterance more specifically from one term to the next. Thus, the Hebrew moledet, which is the word here, that almost certainly has its usual sense of birthplace and, is, uh, and not its occasional sense of kinfolk, which would turn it into a loose synonym for father's house. In Genesis eleven twenty eight, Moladet appears as a part of a genitive construction. I know, lost you. It's okay, listen to me. Land of his birth. Here are two terms. Uh, here, those two terms are broken out for each other to yield the focusing sequence. Land, birthplace, father's house. What Abram is leaving is big. There's everything in layman's terms, right? Abram is leaving something very big, his father's house. Um, Abram did not, again, know where he was going. You can find this in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And there's no jokes about men and not asking for directions there, okay? So, so really, really important, but he didn't know what was going on. This does bring into view a very important topic for all of us to think about. And that is the difference between faith in something that you do not see and the modern Christian ideal of blind faith. Blind faith is not biblical. Blind faith is not biblical. What do I mean by that? Faith is defined as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Which means at the very least what we have in faith is the promise of God. And we listen to the promise of God and we react to the promise of God and we go after the promise of God. Similar in some ways as somebody calling you and saying, hey, I want you to meet me at this location so we can have lunch. Okay? You're taking them on their word, and you go. There's nothing that you can see. You, you're not able in your mind's eye, maybe, to visualize a restaurant, but you're not able to see it. You're not able to see them there. You have to, in faith, trust that their word is good. And so this is what faith is at its core level, at its most base level. In other ways, it can be something like, the heavens declare the glory of God. These are literally things that you see. 
okay? And so Abram is not operating in blind faith even though he doesn't know where he's going. He's operating on a promise that God has given him, which gets us to a really important point for all of us, and that is if God calls you somewhere, if God says, I love to use this analogy, if God says jump, that it, you, the only time you're going to do that is if God also has said, I have provided a net for you. Or I will provide deliverance for you, right? You do not test the Lord your God. You do not play games with it. You don't run away and just try to figure it out. And many in the church today have created this idea of faith being something that is more akin to blind faith, a rolling of some sort of uh, spiritual dice, which is not what God has called us to do. We must react to solid truth, God's actual promises given to us and nothing more okay this is really really important so so abram is actually leaving this place in true faith and by the way faith is how you please god and so he actually has substance and evidence the substance in this case is that god's word said so verse 2 says and i will make you a great nation and i will bless you what does blessing mean um, Waldke, uh, another great commentator, notes this, that bless, uh, the word bless, which occurs five times in Genesis 1 through 11, uh, now occurs five times in three verses, okay? And he suggests that it may be linking the two. The three nuances of blessing are this, prosperity, God does promise prosperity. Prosperity is not what the preacher on television tells you it is, Okay? Prosperity is that God is actually going to prosper you. You know what that means? You ain't going to die. It's about the length of it, okay? <laughs> right? God is going to prosper you. Is he going to take care of your needs? Sure, he'll take care of your needs, just as he takes care of the sparrow. I've got many questions about that, though, right, that are for another time. But one is for prosperity. The second one is a promise or blessing of potency and fertility, Right? So there is a promise that there is going to be more of Abraham's seed, right? And then lastly, I love this promise, and that is there's a promise of victory, church. There's a promise of victory. Did you know that this is still true for you and I today? We do not believe in a gospel that saves us, but we have no clue what the future looks like. We believe in a gospel that, that tells us of our salvation, but also promises victory. That's a very beautiful truth, guys. We're not just believing a goofy story and walking it out, right? We're believing a story that is promising us a great future ahead of us. Genesis 1.22 says, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and, and let birds multiply on the earth. There is this prosperity. There is this... Um, this uh, transition of, of everything that's going on, this victory of what's going on. In Genesis twenty two seventeen, it says, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your, she your seed shall possess, it's really hard to say so many S's at the same time, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. You know, the Bible also says that the gates of hell will not prevail over us over his church? Well, there it is, guys. 
right there. We have one more amazing, amazing promise. So again, God is going to bless Abraham, and it transitions. That blessing is for now, too. And then lastly, it says, I will make your name great. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51. This will not be on the screen, but I I want you to see uh, this most amazing, this most amazing section. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 51, verses 1 through 3. Listen to these words. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. How many of you are pursuing righteousness with everything you've got? You're just like, I want you, Lord. I want to do it your way. And righteousness is by faith, which means you're pursuing God through faith. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. I love the parallel here. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. And then this verse 3 is so beautiful. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And her wilderness, he will make like Eden. He's restoring the order, church. He's promised to restore the order. And he's doing it. And he starts this goofy story with Abraham. And you and I go, that's just a fairy tale. It's just strange. No. It's actually one of the most beautiful stories, if not the most beautiful story that's ever been written, and you're a part of it. So he says, he will comfort all her waste places, and her wilderness he will make like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord, right? In the east of Eden, this garden, this beautiful place. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sound and the sound of melody. Is that not the most beautiful thing ever? So, God is doing something beautiful here, church, and he is doing something with all of us, and I find it amazing, and he started this reordering with Abraham. So he says, I'll make your name great, so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. There's a lot to be said about this cursing, and it seems to imply in the language that the cursing will be the exception and not the rule but woe to those who actually do this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Why do you think it brings up Abram's age in this? Could that be a deterrent to this story? Could that be a threat to the promise that he's like, are you kidding? 75 years old. It also brings up the fact that Sarai was was barren, right? These are all potential threats, but they're also things that literally look the story in the face and say, but God, right? So even if you're as old as Jerry Clust, right? Right? It doesn't matter. God is still going to use you. God still has purpose for you. God still has plans for you. And he does this beautiful thing with Abram, okay? So he calls him out. 75 years old. Now, let's go down to verse 8. Okay? Let's go down to verse 8. And he says, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. 
So in, in verse 8, we've got Bethel, which literally means house of God, and it would become, obviously, the sacred site of Israel, okay? And so he goes to this place, he builds this altar, and this is just this sign. He's praising God, and he's marking this territory or this area out as God's. It's almost like he's, he's putting uh, uh, markers in the land to say, God, this belongs to God, right? So then verse 9, it says, Abram journeyed on, continuing towards the southern portion, uh, southeastern Judah, as it would be. Um, now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, and this is where we get into an interesting part of the story, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Well, that's... Nice flattery, Abram. Where are you going with this? And he says, and when, Egypt, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And I like to read that in my own language because I, I like to filter myself. That's your wife, right? <laughs> okay, so anyway, right? So he say, this is your wife, and then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Okay, so what's the threat to the promise right now? Promise is given to Abram, and Abram's worried for his life. Why is Abram worried for his life? If God makes a promise to you, will he not see you through to the end of the promise? Yes, he will, but Abram is concerned about this. And I think he knows a little bit too much about Egypt, right? These people are pretty crazy. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with you, uh, that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Okay, so Sarai is exactly what Abram thinks, and the Egyptians are, in some sense, going to do this exact same thing. Abram fears that Sarah's beauty um, is actually going to lead the Egyptians to take her, and they're going to take her at any cost, obviously the cost of him dying. He also believes that he's going to, he's going to be killed um, if they learn of his marriage. So he asks her to tell something that is not fully a lie. How many of you know that? This is not fully a lie. Sarah is, in fact, Abraham's sister. How much do you love these stories in Kentucky? Anyway, all right, and sorry to those from Kentucky here. Anyway, okay, so, right, so, so this, this story is interesting, but it's this half-truth because Abram, Abram's fears are actually pretty well-founded. While Abram can be faulted, uh, can be faulted for a lack of faith, um, given, I guess, the accuracy of his suspicion, the incident can be cast as a dilemma in which Abram is, was forced to choose between two evils, okay? Yahweh does not actually chastise Abram in this. Don't know why, right? Doesn't, doesn't make any sense. He doesn't say, you idiot, what the heck are you doing, okay? Abram may have reasoned that at least both he and Sarah would live, uh, though she would be um, violated inside of this situation because they're still gonna they're still gonna attempt to take Sarah. If they deceived the Egyptians, then then both of these things happen. The story can be read though as presenting Abram with a choice between human life and human dignity. 
Okay, and I think that there's something to be said about that. So again, say this is my sister, that's something that is true in Genesis 20, verse 12. It says this, Abram's talking here, as says, besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Okay, so very interesting, crazy story that happens here. So let's go on down to verse 13. Um, sorry, my notes are skipping. Please say that you are my sister so that it will go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Okay, this is a fascinating thing because what's, what is really curious about these stories, and it's just something for us to, to constantly process, is that even in the midst of a fear or a threat against the promise, and steps to take the promise into one's own hand, which we'll see Abram doing a lot, um, as well as Sarah, God seems to work all things together for good, which is going to be the result of Genesis, right? We're going to see this at the end of Genesis, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's just such a beautiful thing. So Abram goes into this situation. He's afraid for his life. He's afraid that the promise is not actually going to be fulfilled. So he makes this pivot and says, tell him you're my sister, which is partly true, right? And this deception goes on, and this is going to happen, and it will actually preserve me alive. In preserving him alive, it also results in an absurd blessing, right? What's the blessing? He's got like tons of donkeys now, right? I don't know that I would see that as a blessing, but he's got tons of sheep, tons of oxen, tons of donkeys, and male and female servants, which all kinds of crazy stuff happens to be thrown into this issue of slavery in the Bible, which is not chattel slavery like we understand in America, right? Um, so, so it's really important for us to understand this, but, but he's been given all of these different things. There's an interesting thing that is worth you guys considering when you're reading through your Bibles. This entrance of this, of this other blessing, which is camels, you're like, who cares, Nathan? It's just like skipping stories. It doesn't matter. I promise you it matters, and it matters for all kinds of good reasons. So the reference to camels in the patriarchal narratives has raised questions of their actual historicity. People look at this and say, this is not historically accurate, therefore it couldn't have been written by Moses, right? Why? It's just an interesting situation, or it couldn't have been, it couldn't have occurred when it supposedly occurred. Some contend for archaeological evidence that, it, that uh, the effective domestication of the camel did not occur before the 12th century BC. Spicer, a scholar, however, suggests that the camel may have come into limited use at an early period, as also did the horse, but required centuries before it ceased to be a luxury. K.A. Kitchen also cites counter-archaeological evidence for a limited domestication of the animal as early as 3000 B.C. Sarna cites evidence providing knowledge of the camel in old Babylonian times, 2000 to 1700 B.C. Possession of the rare animal actually signaled wealth and status. 
why did I read that to you and why do you even care? Because, because skeptics, as we know in all of this, skeptics are going to come against this stuff and say, you don't even have your history right. These don't make sense. But there are historical evidences for these ideas occurring when they occurred. And they would have occurred among the most wealthy. And so who's given the camels? Pharaoh. He's the most wealthy, right? And so at the rear of any caravan, this is really kind of fun to kind of picture Abram in a different way than maybe you did before as they leave Egypt, but at the rear of a caravan, the wealthy and dignified members of the family rode high up on these camels, looking gratefully over the blessings that stretched out in front of them. And I think that that is, oddly enough, a strange lesson for you and I to adhere to in our lives. Sometimes, whether you own a camel or not, you need to take a step back, maybe get on top of your SUV, right? And, and look, right, look out at all the blessings that God has actually given you. Here's what I would really recommend you do. Write them down. Write them down and see what God has actually blessed you with. Because the truth is, this story, this reordering of the world, this promise that includes blessing is still happening today, every day in your life, whether you know it or not. Or whether you acknowledge it or not, right? So it's very powerful. So far, what we have are a couple of deterrents, a couple of, of, of inroads that want to fight against these promises, threats to the covenant. We have age. We have Sarah's infertility. We have this Egyptian situation, the fear of losing one's life as if God isn't a God of resurrection or as if God isn't a God of protection, when the promise was actually a promise of protection as well, of victory, right? All of these things are coming in and they're encroaching against this. And yet, what do we see in Abram in the end? We see a man who continues to be upheld by God's faithfulness as he walks forward. So verse 16, therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. What happened here? Pharaoh was duped. Why is God doing this? There is an idea that there was still a violation of Sarah and the idea of that violation still comes with a consequence of if you curse God's family, there will be curses that are brought upon you, okay? It's just an interesting part of the story. Verse 18, then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? You're also going to notice another level of Abram's silence and not fessing up to his wrongdoing here, right? What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Because you'd kill me, right? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Do you notice what he did? Like this was all the way. I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him, including all that blessing. Get this dirt bag out of here, right? Because of what's going on. Now, there's a lot of conjecture as to what was actually gone on with Pharaoh, uh, ideas that he, he, was, he contracted some sort of... Um, some sort of plague or a sexual disease inside of this. Uh, 
the Bible is not PG, church, okay? So it's really important that we dig into these things and kind of uh, learn the arguments and find out what's going on. So let's, let's briefly touch on a couple of things. In verse 16, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels, Abram's pro- Abram profits considerably from this little deception that he has. So does Jacob later in his story. Uh, the Pharaoh's gift to Abram may have been a type of dowry, uh, according to ancient custom. Don't really know, but the point is, he still seems to have done this. Verse 17, when the Lord struck Pharaoh, instead of chastising Abram, Yahweh actually punishes Pharaoh. And so there's, there's something to be discovered inside of this. Um, and then last but not least, in 13 verse 1, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Here's how I want you to, here's what I want you to walk away with today. Um, there are promises that God makes to us, and there is a promise that God made to Abram. And this promise is a big promise that is going to um, include a land blessing, include a seed blessing, and include a blessing blessing, (laughs) right? He's going to do this. God is never going to fall short in his faithfulness. There are always going to be attacks that come against the promises of God. And what we must do in response is not try to weasel our way around them. What we must do, what Abram did, why his story is there to show us is that we must look to God and we must trust him and we must watch how God brings us out of even pits that we dig for ourselves, right? Even stories that we, uh, bad stories that we put ourselves in. So I love, I love each step of this story, and we're going to learn about Abram and Lot next week and the weirdness of that story. But we're, we're, we're going to continue to see threats that are put against the, against the covenant, against the promises of God, and we're going to continue to see how God remains faithful and he, how he calls his faithful people to walk the walk and talk the talk, okay? So we're going to take our time in communion this, this morning. Adam's going to come up and uh, we are going to, we're going to just spend some time reflecting on yet again, and Dylan will walk us through communion. But uh, we're, we're looking again at the blessing promise that while we take communion, we must realize the story of Abram is not still unfolding in one sense. The promise is true. The very seed of Abram came Amen? He came. He died on a cross. He set it right for you and me. And now we have life. And that is a most amazing story. If we have evidence to have faith for anything, we can look at the Bible and see what God promised thousands of years ago came true. What God promises to you now will come true. He's a God of his word. Amen?